Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. What's up, everybody? I'm Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And today we're going to be kind of taking a little bit of a detour for away from talking about like a central battle. We're yeah. talking about a central event that happens in the kind of during the Ottoman Hungarian period. So, it, you know, it's, it's core to the story, but it's not really like a core battle, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, it's very important setting up what happened after this when the Ottomans face Hungary for one of the um, last times during this time period. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty central issue that weighs on what's the outcome of the, the end of the Ottoman-Hungarian War. But all right, so let's get into it. So I guess let's, we, we gotta, we gotta set up the scene like we always do. So this is about, you know, 50, 50, a little bit under 50, 40, 45 years after the Battle of Breadfield. And a lot of the people that we talked about before, they don't really exist anymore. The, like Matthias, he's long been dead. So the king, king of Hungary is now a guy named Vladislav II, who takes over in, in the 90s, in the 1490s. And with that, he makes in the nineties. Yeah, he makes a bunch of very, very big changes to how the countries run and who's really like in power, and and the rights of of some classes are stripped away. He he focuses on making sure that the aristocrats, the noblemen, uh, the people of the, the higher class, they get all of the benefits, and, and the lower class gets everything really taken away from them. So you see this big transition away from Matthias, who was you know he's kind of like the man of the people, like. We talked about in the other podcast, Clay stated that, you know, he would go out and he'd work with the poor and he was, the people were very loyal to him. And he get this is a complete transition to a guy who the peasants hate, nobody's in favor of except for the, the upper class. Yeah, well, I'm going to go into this a little bit more because it is very important in setting up what's going to happen. Um, so, I mean, the reason why Vladislav II, he was the king of Bohemia at the time that he was elected king of Hungary. And so it's, it's kind of weird because... King Matthias was also the king of Bohemia. Like they both had a claim to the throne or whatever. Um, but so after Matthias dies, uh, there is like a bit of a power struggle for the throne, right? And so all of the barons and kind of the magistrates and the aristocracy at the time all decided to back Vladislav II because he was seen as a very weak leader. And that's why they wanted him. So it was basically. He had a nickname, I, I forget the actual, because it, it's a little bit more in the language, but mm -hmm. um, it's basically saying that he'd sign anything in front of him, and so the magnets and the aristocracy would just kind of give him orders that he would sign because he wouldn't really question it because he was a weak leader, and so this led to the dismantlement of a lot of national administrative systems that were in power under King Matthias, and also... It led to the dismantlement of the bureaucracy system. That was a pretty big step back from what King Matthias had during his reign. He was seen as a very just ruler, and they kind of had a pretty good court system at the time. But it's also important to note that Vladislav II was supported by Knizzi Paul as well. Oh, I didn't see that. That is interesting. Knizzi Paul's still alive at this time, little guy. Yeah, so he had the support of Knizzi Paul as well, which is, you know, a big folk hero, so that helped him. And one of the biggest things was reducing the tax burden because, as we talked about before, 
King Matthias had the Black Army, which was pretty much the only standing army in Christendom at that point, and it was very expensive to upkeep. So they had to cut taxes a ton, and that basically meant that the Black Army, they couldn't pay it anymore. So they just disbanded the Black Army, but then, you know, as there's still a bunch of soldiers and mercenaries that used to compose the Black Army, so they resort to plundering and raiding villages at this time. And Kanizi Paul is now like the leader of the Royal Guard, and he's sent to stop the raiders that were the former Black Army. So it's kind of interesting that he used yeah. to be, you know, the general in the Black Army, and now he's sent to kind of deal with the marauders that came out of the Black Army dis- dismantlement. His old, his old boys, they're now turned against him. Yep. And then he died shortly after that from a stroke. Because if he was still alive after this point, he probably would have been more of a key person during this whole history. Yeah, I wonder I wonder which side he would have fought on. He probably would have sided on sided on Vladislav. I was thinking about that, most likely. But I guess I guess before we get into that we should fully set up the whole scene. So yeah, the, the peasant class, they they got an alleviation to an extent of taxes, but the aristocrats have been given a lot more power to do what they want so they're imposing more restrictions on them like how much of their crop they a yield is given to them you know how often they have to make these payments and so you you see this transition from an extremely nationalized uh hungarian population that's really loyal to their to their crown to now they're more you know, reserved and, and against the idea of, of their king and against the idea of these aristocrats. Mm-hmm. But they're still they're still loyal enough because what happens? Um, so at the time, there was kind of a treaty with the Ottoman Empire of sorts. But during this time, a, a new sultan kind of gains power and it was Sultan Selim I. And he pretty much reinvigorates the Ottomans conquest drive and mainly he's looking to the east and he's conquesting a lot of the Malmuk Malmuk Sultanate of Egypt and a lot of um, the lands over to the east but then he starts looking to the west or towards the Christian nations again and so Pope Leo X at the time sort of sees this as a threat and he wants to um, spur another another crusade and he tasks one of his newly appointed cardinals, Tomas Bakosh, with um, sort of organizing this crusade. And then, so after he, he gets Thomas Bakosh, who's the chancellor for, he's the cardinal and he's the chancellor for Hungary, uh, Thomas Bakosh being a religious guy, even though we have seen in previous instances religious individuals leading armies, like, uh, I forget what his name was, but uh, Edvarna, he, he's got to find somebody who can lead this crusade, right? You know, and he's in Vladislav. I don't know why I couldn't really find anything why Vladislav himself doesn't lose, lead the crusade. Maybe it's because their army had, had fallen apart or maybe because they wanted to field troops that were closer to the Ottoman Empire in Transylvania. So he turns to this guy named Georgi Doja, right? Who, during the first Ottoman-Hungarian wars with Bradfield Varna, he had fought with the Transylvanians and he had fought with the Hungarians and he had proved himself as a very good soldier and a very good leader. He was originally from a very aristocratic and wealthy family, but he had gone off on his own as a, fo- a soldier of fortune to make a name for himself and make, it, you know, make, make his own political position. And he's given the, the job of getting this army, rallying this army. 
and he does it very quickly in the stint of a few a few months he's able to rally almost 40 to 60,000 troops and unfortunately the majority of them are, are uh, peasantry and, and and very low class individuals so they don't have much military training you know they can't turn to the black army because there's that's not standing anymore so he's he gets what he can get right and which is surprising because you'd think that also the peasants wouldn't be down to to join up but they're still loyal they're still they're still ready to i guess fight the the ottoman empire they see them as a threat right and it might be you know something else with maybe it's like a break from their life of peasantry mm. right they get to go fight for a greater cause in, in yeah, their minds because true. you know the ottoman empire is still seen pretty much as the main villain to all of christianity at this time so maybe they feel kind of like a greater purpose. Yeah, maybe they think it's a way to make themselves some some money or make themselves a name because there's a lot of individuals in, in the Crusades that, you know, go in as a peasant, go in as like Kinesi Paul. Right. You know, they don't go in as much and they come out as extremely important individuals. Yeah. So maybe that's that's that plays a role in it. Yeah. And that was another thing that I was wondering because if Kinesi Paul was still alive at this time, would he have been given the task of organizing the oh, Crusade? Yeah. That's a good point. I bet I bet he probably would have, and then I don't. It, this might have gone completely differently, but yeah, Doja gets the troops, and he's tasked with training them, making them a standing army to to rival the Turks. And while he's he's training them, he starts to notice there's you know growing discontent in the army because, like we were saying, many of them might have done it out of loyalty, or they might have done it out of of uh, trying to make a name for themselves. But I think the majority of them probably expected to get something, you know, be able to be treated well mm-hmm. as, as an army. But uh, according to accounts, they weren't provided any food or clothing. They were just provided weapons and armor. So you've got this class that's already been kind of uh, mistreated and, and marginalized. And then they're now being relied on to fight the Ottoman Empire and they're not being given anything at all. And they have to provide everything for themselves again. So they start getting pretty upset with their circumstances and they're they're not at the point where they're openly rebelling or there's a mutiny or anything, but they're right, right. you can tell there's something in the air. Yeah, they're just kinda of airing grievances at this yeah. point about the landlords. And I think the the funding is an important point because yeah, not having any food or water really helped spur their um their distaste for the landlords and upper class. And that actually might've been the Pope's fault because Pope Leo X um, has been regarded as kind of a controversial Pope. But one thing he did do was spend a ton of money Mm -hmm. uh, of the, of the papal um, savings. And he basically got rid of the entire savings that the Pope before him had. And so he just kind of spent lavishly on all these different projects. And so, you know, in his mind, having a crusade is good, but probably he didn't raise enough money to actually fund one. And that's kind of where these problems are starting to grow from. Yeah. And then also uh, the royalty, the aristocrats of Hungary, they're also supposed to be responsible for partially leading the crusades. Doja's in, in command, but they're, they're also the, the country who's fielding mm-hmm. troops and also providing the resources and they aren't giving anything to these peasants they're not giving anything to the to the army so this is making them even more upset you know they they're just seeing themselves getting slighted left and right you know and they are still loyal enough that they start the trek the march after they've been trained they start the trek uh towards transylvania towards uh romania and they're going through this area of hungary called the great hungarian plains 
which is crazy when I was reading about it. It's, it's 59% of all of Hungary, and it's just this gigantic open field with, like, very little tree covering, no hills really, just gargantuan field, right? And in the middle of their march, they come to the realization from messengers from the noble class that those noblemen in Hungary still expect the crusading peasants to provide harvest to go and reap their fields right which is just outlandish because like they're they're on a on a crusade <laughs> but, yeah. but they ex- still ex- still expect their their you know their tax their harvest tax and you know they're they can't really do anything about it because they're they're marching and all these noblemen start going ballistic and they start you know destroying these peasants homes and going after the the peasantry class that's still there and this is really the nail in the coffin for them this is this is really really gets them gets them all riled up right right they pressure their families and you know they pressure the wives mainly of the the husbands that went off to go fight this crusade so it's just a whole storm of things yeah and so they uh i guess it it might be attributed to because there was no funding but also may be attributed to the fact that uh bakosh the chancellor he might have have noticed that there was this discontent and he was fearing a rebellion. So he calls off the crusade completely. He thinks, okay, they got to answer to these nobles. They got to, we got to stop this in its tracks, right? So the crusade gets called off, but. Right. Which that's, that's regarded as kind of, you know, a bad decision because you have this already assembled army of disgruntled peasants. And then you pretty much take away their entire purpose for serving their country as an army, but they're still armed and everything. And it's, it's interesting since this time frame is so short, right? Like Bakosh called for volunteers in April of 1514. And then according to the counts, he suspended the crusade in May of the same mm-hmm. year. So yeah. it's just like a very rapid succession of, of these decisions. And these peasants are just kind of left out to dry and they're not happy with that. And it is, it is an, you know, an interesting point that, uh, crusades did happen like this this was a a common thing a crusade would get launched and then it would stop a crusade would get launched it would get called off you know that was Mm -hmm. that would occur a lot because there would be you know some some support from a country from some christian country to lead a a crusade but then maybe the logistics just didn't make sense so they call off but in this instance it really doesn't make sense because like we were saying these people might have believed that this was their their ticket out of the peasantry class and then they get all this this growing and brooding anger and then it the thing the one last thing they have to hold on is is taken from them and they just were trained they're armed you know they're they're not gonna sit idle and let this happen to them they're gonna they're gonna get upset and do something about it so and that's exactly what happens yeah so this this peasant army starts to you know become sort of an uprising and you know, doza is still at the head at this point but he sees you know, the reins almost slipping out from under him and he has a pretty big choice. He can either, you know, stay away from from this uprising that's going to eventually turn to a rebellion or he can take an active role as their leader and kind of direct them in, in, a, in a way. Yeah. And maybe I was thinking about this too because their, their anger was so, so directed towards the upper class, the aristocrats. And Doja himself is an aristocrat. He comes from a, a long lineage of, of wealthy aristocrats mm-hmm. in Hungary and Transylvania, mostly Transylvania. So he might see that, like, the decision he has to make is that, do I let them 
you know, go after, like, if I were to give up this, this role as the leader, they might go after me and go after my family. But if I take the roles, then I can kind of direct them away from my family, you know, and direct them towards the other nobot, the nobles, right? So maybe it's more of he's, he's securing himself and his family from, from the destruction that he knows is going to happen. Or maybe he just, he, he really gets down with what their, their beliefs are and their ideology. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe at the start, that's how he felt, yeah. but we definitely see as the rebellion goes on, he becomes much more ingrained in the ideology and starts, um, you know, making these um, claims himself of what he thinks the, the country and the world should look like and really yeah. going deep into it. So it's a big reforms. Yeah. yeah. So he does, you know, decide to take charge of the army that he was already in charge of. And at the time, a lot of the other you know, towns and, and small cities along the way were also unhappy with the landholders and how their aristocracy were, were leading. And so they got a lot of support. Um, Doja and, and the peasant army got a lot of support from these cities as well. And so they made the base of the operations for their uprising, the town of Sigled. And, you know, after they've they've taken a few of these cities, they're actually starting to acquire you know, real weapons. They're starting to acquire real trained soldiers and artillery, cannons, and they're they're they have this very quick push throughout Hungary, where they're taking more and more cities, city after city after city. And that's also attributed to the fact that these cities, you know, like Clay said, some of them are in support of what they believe, and also some of them see that like it's not really an option. You know, they got this giant army of sixty thousand peasants with cannons running through the, mm-hmm. the fields straight towards these cities and they're thinking like well we, we gotta you know surrender to them so it's very quick that they're taking all this in it right you know at, doja isn't really engaging in much combat there's an, there's several occasions where the noblemen had sent detachments of cavalry to try to maybe go break it up or defend these cities and they like are quickly just you know they're either ripped off their horses or, or they're pelted by arrows and they're right. just gone they're they're ran off so there's not really much battles. Yeah, it would usually go that it would just be, you know, little bands of peasant fighters would go into and nearby cities and manors and raid them and usually kill the, the higher class gentries and the landowners like that. And then, you know, pretty much go on to the next city. That's how it was going right now. And, you know, Hungary doesn't have the black army at this point. They don't have a standing army to rally to go deal with this um insurrection of sorts but king vladislaus issues a command for the peasants to return to their homes or be executed and that doesn't really do anything but fuel the fire more under the peasants and it kind of turns into this full-scale rebellion yeah and over the stint of two weeks he's taken or doge has taken almost half of of hungary which isn't really saying much because it's there's on the periphery area of hungary there wasn't many places there wasn't many cities right. but they've killed like uh, the numbers you know there's not really a, an accurate account but it's claimed that hundred to a thousand uh manners and families aristocratic families were killed so they're just going through it's kind of like the french revolution yeah. they're just killing anybody that looks royal or looks you know wealthy and they're not you know they're not treating them very nice they're dragging them out in the, the fields and brutally murdering them so it's got to be stopped. That's what Vladislav thinks. There's got they got to do something because he's next, right? That's who they're aiming for. They're aiming for the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it becomes pretty much the top priority for the ruling noble class to deal with this rebellion. 
And so they have to assemble an army and King Vladislav is able to do that by hiring mercenaries from some of the surrounding nations like the Holy Roman Empire and the Republic of Venice and Bohemia. And he's able to assemble about 20,000 soldiers and knights. So it's a, you know, a pretty sizable army. But the, the key thing is these are actual soldiers and knights. So they're well tra- trained and well equipped. And he puts the leadership of this army under John Sapola, who is the, the void of Transylvania or like the governor of Transylvania at this time. And um, one of the other leaders is Stephen Battery VIII, which is a different battery than the one that was commanding at the Battle of Breadfield. But uh, I don't know if you want to get into the whole family lineage, Sam. Yeah, just just interestingly, I just want to throw this in. The Batori family, while I was researching them, they have a lot, like a long lineage. They go back to like the 900s. But interestingly enough, uh, there's a, there, I don't know if, if many people have heard of this. I, I feel like it's a very popular story. There was a countess in Transylvania named Elizabeth Batori who was claimed to have been the blood countess. She would murder young girls and then she would bathe in their blood. And it's it's one of the, the stories that really originated the idea of vampires because she would drink and bathe in blood. That's what was claimed. There's not actually any first-hand accounts mm-hmm. of that happening. But she did get executed and killed for the murder of multiple young girls. And she's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for the uh, largest... Uh, amount of kills attributed to a woman serial killer. Wow. I just think that's interesting because, you know, that 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 story, I, I just, when I was a kid, I remember always hearing about the blood countess who would bathe in the blood. And she's actually the, she's the, uh, she's the second niece of Stephen Batory, who's in charge of leading half of this, uh, this army. Yeah. So just, you I know, was, uh, interesting. I just never told those stories when I was a child. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, come on, you had to have heard of the blood countess who bathed in the blood. I thought everybody had. I don't know, man. <laughs> okay all right well just maybe somebody out there who's listening will, will know what i'm talking about yep but okay so we have this army of knights and soldiers under zapola and at this point doza has gotten pretty close to the main capital of hungary right mm-hmm. yeah he's within spitting distance almost right so it's basically this is the first real instance where the peasant rebellion army is going to meet the aristocrat army and it's going to be at this fortress of uh, Timishvar which is right near the capital and it is a um it's a very short battle actually so Zapola yeah. was very brutal in how he dealt with these peasants and um the rebels you know are very poorly trained so they're not going to be a match for a heavy cavalry that's charging to them you know that they can't really stand a chance against that with their very limited supplies and arms so it's it's pretty much just a wash of a battle with Zapola just massacring a lot of the peasants um, they do however capture Doza alive and that was also uh one of the the requests of Vladislav was to ensure that Doja was alive that he wasn't killed in battle that he could he could answer for his crimes because He's like a big name to the aristocrat. <laughs> you know, he's, he's the one that's being given the, you know, the position as a scapegoat for all this 
murder and killing of these aristocratic and noble families. It's his fault, yeah. according to Lasso. So how do they um how do they deal with Doja? Oh man, oh man. When we were when I was when we were first talking about this hungry Ottoman campaign and what we wanted to talk about this this story I had heard a long time ago, and man, it just like ingrained mm-hmm. in my brain how how brutal they treated. This is probably up there with one of the worst executions ever yep. to a person. And that's saying a lot because it's coming from the medieval period, and they're pretty brutal back then. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so when they get hold of him, he, he gets immediately found guilty. There's not really a trial at all. Like Clay said, they got rid of the judicial system for the most part. So he's just immediately sentenced to death, to death for uh, conspiracy against the king and like an attempt to take his throne, regicide. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he's condemned to sit on an iron throne, right, that as covered in coals and it's basically molten hot and near molten hot it's, it's red hot they have a scepter that they place in his hands that is also molten hot mm-hmm. they it doesn't really say how they get in his hand i assume that it was either tied on or nailed or something yeah, you know, yeah. you'd probably drop it and then a molten crown right and this and they're all iron so they're all very hot and and they're all placed on him he's naked and they do this because you know they want to mock him for trying to take the throne mm-hmm but the worst part is yet to come. This is this is the brutal part. Yeah. So then his leaders, his co-conspirators of the peasant army, who most of them are peasants, but one of them is actually, in fact, his younger brother. And they have been sitting in prison for the past week, not being fed at all. So they're starving. And they're brought out in front of Doja. And while they're standing in front of him, the executioner comes over with a pair of tongs and starts tearing off pieces of his flesh. Not fully off, just like ripping the pieces of flesh off of his body. So they're hanging off. And then the 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 leaders, the co-conspirators, are told that if they don't choose to eat these pieces of flesh off of his body, they will be killed. So the first one they go to is his younger brother, who of course says, no, I'm not doing this. And he's immediately chopped into three pieces from his leg up to his chest. And then two more of the co-conspirators say, no, we're not doing it. Same thing happens to them. And then the last, the last of the, there's nine of them, the last six do it. They eat it. They eat. It's just like, what the, oh my, oh my. Uh, So yeah. But they were spared. They were, they were actually spared, which is surprising because what happens later. But yeah, he, uh, he dies, of course, on the throne uh, pretty quick after that. But man, is that brutal. That's very brutal. Oh man. It's crazy. Just like who came up with that? Probably Vladislav or some of the aristocrats. Yeah. I, I mean, in the accounts I was reading, it said that Vladislav II was the one that made him do it. So I don't know if it was mm. completely his idea, though. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, and then what happens to the, the peasants, the standing peasant army that are alive and also the peasants who are chilling at home? Yeah. So, I mean, the aftermath of this is really pretty terrible for what Hungary used to be as a major power, but uh, thousands of peasants were tortured after this Mm. and it's pretty brutal and there wasn't really much mercy, but then the ruling class made it even more oppressive for the serfs and the peasants. They, because you know, when Vladislav took power, they made it pretty oppressive, but they went further now. And there was the, the tripartitum, which was like a um, unofficial legal document that was written that kind of further divided the gentry and the noble class from the peasants. And so it was very, very 
bad and resulted in the long-term perpetuation of the Hungarian feudal system and really created this deep, deep rift between the Hungarian people that really wasn't repaired for centuries. Yeah. And this is one of the main reasons that uh, the coming battles with the Ottoman Empire, they're able to get so deep into Hungary and take so much is because with the prior instances of, of conflict between the two nations, they're able, Hungary at least, is able to rally troops pretty pretty easily. They're able to go to the peasant class and get a standing army. Mm-hmm. But now, now that they've just, like Clay said, created such a rift in between the two parties, these they're not loyal anymore to the to the crown. They're they're not as ready to jump on board with this crusade. So it's so pretty pretty big Achilles' heel to the Hungarian Empire in the coming years for for these these laws they've passed and this decision to mistreat the peasantry even more. Yeah, and it's a really crazy turnaround because during the rule of King Matthias, Hungary was probably the most powerful christian nation or one of them and it rivaled the ottoman empire for power and size and money and then now it's only been you know less than a century and that entire entire thing they had is just gone all of their progress they made is pretty much just washed away pretty quickly and it left hungary very weakened yeah and like they got rid of the black army they've now killed off like 20 30,000 uh peasantry they've enacted all these rules created a rift it's just it's it's not good it's not good yeah and at the same time the ottoman empire has pretty much doubled its its empire under the rule of sultan selim the first who was a very effective general and gained a lot of land for the ottoman empire so the ottoman empire is now a lot stronger than it once was and Hungary is a lot weaker than it once was. So in the next battle we have coming up, the battle of the Mohawks, we, we definitely see that, that power difference. Yep. And well, that's, that's pretty much it. There's not, you know, we've gotten to the, the main details of it. There wasn't really a battle, which is unfortunate, but I just thought it was important to bring up this story because it's very core to the Ottoman and Hungarian uh, conflict of the, you know, for like 200, 300 years. And this is kind of, kind of one of the most important events. Yeah. It's a bit of a change of pace, but it really sets up what, what's to come. Yeah. And oh, also uh, important to note that Doja, you know, after about 200, 200, 300 years, he gets immortalized as a hero and a martyr. And he's actually on a Hungarian banknote. Now it's the 20, 24 mm. banknote. And his site of where he, where the throne was is now a, site of christian worship where a large monument to the virgin mary sits and there's images of of doja all around yeah so it kind of kind of like you know worked out of course he got brutalized but he's you know he's recognized as not being a bad guy now yeah a little bit of a consolation yeah i mean even though it ended how it did this is still regarded as kind of one of the most successful rebellions of all time Mm mm-hmm yeah I mean, he got closer than anyone really, like, in the medieval period, that is. He's gotten closer than anyone ever had, because it just was so unrealistic in the medieval period for a peasant army that are, you know, underfed, undertrained, under, you know, provided for to go against a standing army. But he almost does it. I mean, there's arguments that says he he could have done it if he had played it a little bit differently. Yeah, if they were a little bit more prepared, because... um... Yeah, just the heavy cavalry against a, an army of 
unarmored peasants is it's pretty much a one-sided battle at that point yeah, i can imagine that a heavy cavalryman could probably fend off hundreds of peasants yeah <laughs> you know it's kind of difficult to take on a guy that's covered in armor his horse is covered in armor you don't really have much but yeah that's that's pretty much it it's the the doja rebellion which it's it's known as yeah so thanks for listening everybody yeah check us out next week Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that. 